this this year on the fourteenth uh, of April, to be precise. I was uh, visiting one of my favourite places, namely uh, Port Ballantrae uh, on Northern Ireland's scenic north coast. And I was crossing the road uh, from the wee car park over to the Bayview um, Hotel. And I stopped and I took two photographs with my um, phone. Uh, the first one, I turned towards the sea. And if we could have port one, hopefully, coming up. And that was the scene that um, I was looking at. Beautiful, beautiful sunny day. The sea, lovely blue sky. And then I simply swung around like that and took a photograph with my phone looking inland. And this is the photograph. <laughs> Unbelievable. That way, this beautiful, beautiful sunny day, and did that, and it looked like an absolute torrential downpour was about to fall. Well, the first one, the one that is all sunshine and blue sky, that was what Israel had experienced each day for over three years. Not as we might in Northern Ireland, we think of the first one very much as a blessing. But for Israel, it was a curse. It was God's judgment on King Ahab and the nation for their idolatrous worship of Baal. Not a rain cloud in sight. Hence drought, hence famine, hence starvation, Hence death. The second picture from this morning there was really what Israel craved. Storm clouds signaling an impending downpour and then renewed fertility for the land. And that was what Israel was going to experience subsequent to Elijah's confrontation with the prophet's of Baal on Mount Carmel that forms the basis then of this morning's study in the light of Israel's distinguished prophet, Elijah. Our reading is taken from 1 Kings. Uh, we're in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, uh, really where we left off last time. Um, we're going to be reading from verse 16. Um, last time we left off with Elijah having told Ahab's palace official Obadiah to inform Ahab that Elijah wanted to meet the king, wanted to meet with uh, Ahab. So let's read from verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, 
but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel, of course, being the <coughs> of Ahab. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be wakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. 
At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds the wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Our passage is a lengthy one, but mercifully, it's actually very easy to carve up. I'm going to carve it into five sections. And then we'll finish with um, just some lessons. So section one, verses 16 to 20. Elijah challenges Ahab. Last study we saw how Elijah assured Obadiah that he would not run from Ahab. And true to his word, when the king arrives at the agreed rendezvous point, the prophet was waiting for the king. Ahab immediately goes on the offensive, greeting Elijah as, you troubler of Israel. But Elijah is having none of it. It is not him, but Ahab, who has brought distress upon Israel, that due to the royal dynasty's idolatry. In particular, Ahab had instituted explicit Baal worship into the nation. Elijah then throws down the gauntlet, summon the people from all over the land to meet him at Mount Carmel for a showdown between himself as Yahweh's representative and the prophets of Baal, 450 strong, plus the 400 prophets of Baal's consort, the goddess Asherah, 
who occupied positions of influence in the royal court due to the patronage of Queen Jezebel. Elijah's challenge is one that Ahab is keen to take up. After all, this looks like a certain home run. The odds are fantastically loaded in uh, Baal's favour, 850 to 1. And the contest is to take place on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, not caramel for you chocolate lovers, Mount Carmel stood 1,900 feet above the Mediterranean Sea on the border between Israel and Phoenicia. And it was considered to be one of the pagan high places. So Elijah, not only did he face numerically, he was so outnumbered, but he was playing, if you like, an away fixture, like Spurs later on today at Arsenal. Um, how could the prophets of Baal fail to win with their massive numerical advantage and on home turf boot? <laughs> Thus Ahab complies with Elijah's wish. Word is sent throughout the land for the people and the prophets to assemble on Carmel. Second section, verses 21 to 24, Elijah now challenges the Israelites. And verse 21 is a very well-known part of God's word. I remember Carson speaking on it years ago. And we will return to it um, in one of our lessons. How long will you waver between two opinions? Um, if the Lord, that is Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the word that Elijah employs for waver is halt. It's the idea of um, sort of hobbling at a crossroads. Which way shall I go? Which way shall I go? And Elijah's challenge to the people is to stop vacillating. Stop trying to have it both ways. Choose Yahweh or Baal, for you can't have both. And very sadly, the people say nothing. They say nothing. Elijah is undeterred. He will stand for Yahweh, no matter if he is alone in doing so. And you know, when you think of that, him by himself, facing all these uh, other prophets. We don't actually know if the 400 uh, prophets of Asherah actually did take part in this. Presumably they came, but there's no explicit mention of them taking place. But nonetheless, he's massively, massively outnumbered and he feels that he's standing alone. And we might well think of the Apostle Paul who told Timothy that at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me, Paul alone. Or the great church father, Athanasius, who when told, do you not know that the whole world is against you? Responded, 
then it is Athanasius against the whole world. Or Martin Luther, who at the diet of, I presume you pronounce it in terms, was when he was pressured to recant, given that the whole church hierarchy was opposed to him, Luther, after a night's reflection, declared, Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Luther against the church hierarchy. Elijah commands that two bulls are brought forth and the prophets of Baal are given first pick and they are to cut the bull into pieces and prepare it for sacrifice. Elijah then will do likewise with the second bull. And then the prophets of Baal will call upon their God to consume the sacrifice with fire and Elijah will do the same with uh, in respect of calling on Yahweh. Whoever's God answers with fire will be considered then the victor, that is, the true God. And this the people actually like the sound of. What you have said is good. Because after all, not only is Elijah way outnumbered by the prophets of Baal, and playing on a way territory. But on top of that, Baal is the sun god. And also, he is the storm god. Surely this has to be an absolute shoe-in for the prophets of Baal. And then the people will be able to get back to their synchronistic worship. And having been proved victorious, a propitiated Baal will hopefully pour out rain from the heavens and bring an end to this miserable drought. Section 3, verses 25 to 29. Elijah challenges the false prophets. The prophets of Baal are more than ready to take up Elijah's challenge. They prepare their bull for sacrifice and the contest <coughs> begins. And from morning till noon, they cry upon Baal to send down fire on the altar. They shout, they dance, but no response is forthcoming. And Elijah begins then to taunt them. Shout louder! Maybe their God is engaged or asleep or on his travels or even, as it's possible to translate one of the terms, in the can, at the toilet. So they shout all the louder and they lacerate themselves until their blood flows. Midday passes and still a silence from the skies. Right through to the time of the evening sacrifice, they continue with their frantic prophesying, their hysterical yelling, but all to no avail. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal was proven to be a dumb god, a dead idol. Fourthly, verses 30 to 30 to 40, Elijah summons the people. Elijah has now had enough of the false prophets' antics. 
Now is the time for Yahweh to prove that he is God. So he gathers the Israelites before him. First, he repairs the altar of the Lord, which tellingly lay in ruins, showing how the nation had neglected worship of Yahweh. Then he does something strange. He digs a trench around the, um, the rebuilt altar. Why, we'll see in a moment. The bull is prepared for sacrifice, and Elijah orders that the people fill four large jars with water and literally saturate the offering site. Indeed, they are to do this three times, such that the water is actually filling the freshly dug trench. You see, Elijah is determined that he will not be accused of having resorted to any form of sharp practice by, say, maybe secretly placing a burning coal under the sacrifice. No, the site of sacrifice is a wash with water. If then the sacrifice is consumed with fire, it will clearly be an act of God, a supernatural intervention <laughs> defying any rationalistic explanation. No trickery will be involved. Mind you, this has not stopped some liberal theologians from suggesting some ridiculous natural explanations for the pyrotechnics, such as they say, oh, there was a freak lightning strike, or they say that somehow the materials were combustible, I mean, anything but except what God's word says. Now the moment of truth. Elijah steps forward and prays unto, unto God to prove his unique deity and to vindicate his servant and to turn the Israelites back to exclusive worship of Yahweh by burning up the sacrifice. And that's exactly what happens. Fire rages down and in an absolute holocaust, um, everything is burnt up. The bull, the stones, the soil, and even the very water in the trench. What more proof is needed regarding whose claim to deity is justified? And the people respond, falling prostrate and exclaiming that Yahweh, not Baal, is God. Elijah emerges victorious, and the false prophets pay the price of defeat. They're gathered up, marched off to the Kishon Valley, and they're put to the sword in a mass slaughter, to which I will return in a moment. Fifthly, verses 41 to 46, Elijah and the heavenly deluge. Having told Ahab to go eat and drink, Elijah reascends the mountain, whereupon he casts himself upon the Lord in prayer, for the rain that he has assured the king is imminent. And Elijah is nothing but persistent. A total of eight times he commands his servant to look out towards the sea for evidence of a rain cloud on the horizon. And upon the appearance of a tiny fluff in the sky, Elijah is so confident of the deluge that is going to follow that he orders that Ahab be warned to get a move on 
and rapidly dispatch his chariot to take him to his nearby palace at Jezreel. Otherwise, he will literally get stuck in the mud. And sure enough, the sky grew black, just like Exhibit 2 in this morning's slideshow. The wind rose and a heavy rain came on. I believe that's what's going to happen this afternoon. Not that that's a prophecy of mine, but the weather forecast tells me it will be very heavy rain later today. Elijah is so empowered that he does his own impression of Hussein Bolt. He bolts it off to Jezreel to accompany the king, whom he hopes will be chastened and repentant as a result of the fire and rain extravaganza that he has been privileged to see. Whether he is genuinely repentant, we will leave <clears throat> to another day. And so to today's lessons, three in total. Number one, there is only one true God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That was the declaration of the people in view of the clear victory of Elijah over the false prophets, or to be more accurate, of Yahweh over Baal. Only Yahweh responded, for only he is the living God. Baal was silent, for Baal is a deaf and dumb man-made idol. And the same is true of modern-day idols, for we have created our own idols. Entertainment, career, sex, body image, material possessions, holidays. But they are just that. They are idols. They are false deities. Idols that cannot provide answers to life's great questions and to the human yearning for true and lasting fulfillment. Only the living God can do that. The God that we know as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. <clears throat> Number two, we must choose who we will serve. Elijah had challenged the Israelites, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Years before, Joshua had challenged the nation. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your for the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Before adding, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The Israelites of Elias' day had opted for a mongrel religion, a mixture of Baalism with a sort of residual bit of worship of Yahweh. But such religious synchronism would cut it, and it won't cut it for us today. We cannot have a bit of both. As Jesus declared, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We cannot sit on the fence, or to change the metaphor, we cannot have our cake and eat it. 
For the first two years after I made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I tried living with a foot in each camp. A foot that sort of, a kind of embraced this Christianity, but a foot very definitely still in the world. And I have to say that I was really pretty miserable. And it was after two years I came to a personal crossroads. And I remember actually consciously um, deciding, or faced with this choice, I remember consciously looking at the options and thinking, you know what, I'm not continuing on the way that I've been going the last two years. I'm either going to commit myself fully to God, or I'm abandoning it, and I'm going back, and going back to full on in the world, as I have been before. And by the mercy of the grace of God, I chose the former path. Oh, well, it was the bar alarm. Um, very subtle message. Um, <laughs> I was going to do a third point, but uh, in fairness, I am beaten by the clock. And I was going to say about, you know, about the whole thing about the, um, the, the slaughter of the, the prophets. Because um, some people, of course, today say, oh, that's dreadful. If only, if only Elijah had lived in a later day, he wouldn't have resorted to such terrible, primitive stuff. But the big lesson from that is, as has been mentioned already today, you mess about with the wrath of God at your peril. You don't repent of your sin, you're going to face the God of wrath in a day to come. <clears throat> but I'm beaten by the clock. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.